imprudent marriages, roared Michael. And pray, where in earth or heaven are there any, any prudent marriages? Might as well talk about prudent suicides. You and I have dawdled round each other long enough. And are we any safer than Smith and Mary Gray who met last night? You never know a husband until you marry him. Unhappy? Of course you'll be unhappy. Who the devil are you that you shouldn't be unhappy like the mother that bore you? Disappointed? Of course we'll be disappointed. I, for one, don't expect till I die to be so good a man as I am at this minute. For just now I'm 50,000 feet high, a tower with all the trumpets shouting. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Marie. And I'm Grace. On today's episode, we are discussing the fourth chapter of G.K. Chesterton's comedic novel, Man Alive. This is chapter four, The Garden of the God. It's great to see you, Grace. You too. Um, So as uh, we kind of talked about a little bit last week... Grace has been so kindly doing a bit more work for our episodes, and she has all these beautiful notes laid out. It's going to be a really fun episode, fun chapter to talk about. Definitely a fun chapter. I feel like this is the one where everything goes bum, bum, bum. (laughs) So (laughs) anyways, um, I uh, assume you're drinking something lovely and non-alcoholic. I am drinking I am drinking water again this week. Some next week I'm going to have something more exciting, I promise. <laughs> I will drink something other than water, but this is special tap San Diego water. Very what are you good. drinking tonight? I have a Chardonnay and a lemon tea. So, I'm trying to get into Beautiful. the relaxation zone. So, <laughs> that's what's happening right now. Hopefully that'll help you wind down. Love it. Definitely. So, have you been reading anything lately? Interesting. Um, so I have been reading The Lord of the Rings, which is not the first time that I've read it, but it's a Lenten practice that I like to do um, just because I think the story is so, I don't know, well-rounded or something. Like it includes so many different aspects of, I think, the spiritual life. And during Lent, it seems like an appropriate time to read about struggle and battle and things like that. So I've been reading Lord of the Rings and it is delightful as usual. That's awesome. How about you? I, yeah, I have been doing some reading. I recently was encouraged by my husband to read sort of a, (laughs) trashy is not the right word, but just (laughs) like a fun mystery novel that I'm not even going to name because it's just a modern author that I enjoy. And I really enjoyed reading that. It was like a nice beach read for me this week. Um, But also, I started um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. And uh, I'm also, like, I've kind of doubled down lately on learning French. And so I've been doing about half an hour a day um, on my French lessons. And um, Jules Verne was French. And, you know, the main character in the story or one of the main characters is um, a Frenchman. So it's been kind of fun seeing the French influences. And I would love someday to read it in French in the original text. So but anyway, it's been a really interesting story. It kind of has uh, Jules Verne wrote some strange books and they're not feel-good books, but they are really <laughs> interesting. Um, I was talking with a coworker today about um, H.G. Wells kind of gives me a similar feeling mm. um, to Jules Verne. Uh, they both love science fiction and sort of pushing boundaries with like morals and, and science. So um, I'm probably six chapters into it and already there have been plenty of moral questions posed Mm. that I'm really looking forward to seeing if there's a resolution. Um, But I'm also looking forward to just thinking about these questions a little bit more as I continue reading. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I haven't read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I think I've read, at least when I was a lot younger, 
he wrote Around the World in 80 Days, too, right? Wasn't yes, that the same I guy? believe so, yeah. yeah. And Journey to the Center of the Earth. Oh, and, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yep, he he was fascinated with going towards, going around the adventures. Earth. <laughs> yeah, adventures, um, traveling in sort of uh, uncommon or like at the time unfathomable ways. Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting book so far. And I, I don't know, I'm not really familiar with many um, seafaring ideas. Like I didn't grow up around boats except for the, like the boats in the harbor. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I didn't grow up around boats or sailors or anything. So it's always really fun for me to like be um, shot into this world of um, the sea and hearing so much about it when I um, I really don't know that much about it. It's been it's been fun. So that's great. Yeah. All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about in this episode. So I figure maybe we should just go ahead and get started. Let's do it. Rosamond Hunt is all in a tizzy because her companion Mary, Gray, companion Mary Gray actually wants to marry Innocent Smith. She attempts to get Diana Duke and Arthur Inglewood to help her stop them, but they won't. So she rushes back to Michael Moon, whose previously hated cynicism now seems most desirable. When she arrives in the garden, however, Michael Moon is in an entirely different mood, as if Innocent Smith's proposal unlocked something inside of him that had been dying to get out. He flings his pipe to the other end of the garden in a rush of romance, confesses his love to Rosamond while accusing her of loving him too, and proposes to her. She tries to resist at first, but ultimately lets her guard fall, and the two of them rush off in a flurry of delight to sing and play the mandolin. Meanwhile, Arthur Inglewood finds Diana Duke in the house crying, a shocking scene which causes something in him to open up as well. He comforts her confidently, which causes him to find his voice, and he proposes to her. She also accepts, and it is as if the four tenants of the boarding house have entered into an enchanted dream world. In the midst of this sunny ecstasy, the serious and melancholic Dr. Warner shows up like a storm, heeding a previous cry for help and accusation by Rosamond that Innocent Smith is dangerously insane. Despite her merry retraction of the accusation, Dr. Warner insists on finding Innocent Smith and examining him. A few minutes later, the whole joyous scene bursts as two deafening gunshots ring out from behind the house. Dr. Warner quickly emerges with two holes in his hat, and Innocent Smith, who is laughing hysterically, emerges behind him holding a smoking gun. Another doctor, who has come with Dr. Warner, jumps out of the cab and tells the group that Smith is a dangerous fugitive for whom they have been searching, and that they must now carry him off to an insane asylum. The group is stunned, and all the excited romance seems to drown out of the scene like water down a drain. Well written, Grace. Thanks. It's such a... It's such a... uh, topsy-turvy chapter which I think I said last time but I feel like innocent (laughs) continuously turns us the other way gives us a new perspective right and this chapter like I don't know what you were thinking but when I first read this chapter and especially the ending I was totally thrown for a loop I was like wait a minute I thought I had this guy figured out I thought I knew where he was going with all of this and like now he's like almost shot a dude in the head like what is happening (laughs) Yeah, and the fact that he's laughing when he's holding the gun is also not very comforting. It makes right. him seem like he really is insane. Right. Um, yeah, no, the first time I read it, too, I thought, gosh, did he try to kill him and he was unsuccessful, but he had fun doing it? Or, you know, it's like we, we've got to find out. Right. Um, Well, I guess before we get there, we should kind of back up and talk about the first things that happen in the chapter. So we have uh, a proposal last chapter, Innocent Smith proposing to Mary Gray. But then in this chapter, we have two more proposals, um, one Michael Moon to Rosamond Hunt and then Arthur Inglewood to Diana Duke, um, which just was so funny to me (laughs) how they both happen in the first part where, um, well, I think there's sort of like a almost like a preamble to the proposals um you start to see their guard beginning to come down and there's a point where Inglewood describes Diana I think to her face but he's speaking to someone else um or like in front of her but he's speaking to somewhere else oh he says um 
let's see, Rosamond comes in and tries to convince them to help her stop Mary Gray from saying yes to Innocent Smith. And Arthur says, unfortunately, it seems to me that they simply can get married. Um, He says, I have far less right of intervention than Miss Duke, besides having, of course, far less moral force than she. So he almost like gives her a compliment. Um, I think she's in the room, but he's sort of depressed like she's so much better than me like I'll never be good enough for her like that kind of stuff is what I got from that and then uh when Rosamond gets angry at them for not agreeing she starts to describe it doesn't say Michael Moon at first but she starts to describe someone who she she thinks will take her seriously (laughs) and she says um I think I know someone who will help me more than you do at any rate. He's a cantankerous beast, but he's a man and has a mind and knows it. (laughs) So she's like, she was just angry about Michael Moon in the last chapter, like being a cantankerous beast. But like now she's like appreciating it. (laughs) Yeah. She's relying on him to be old faithful in this, in this situation. Right. Yeah. I, I do like how the roles get reversed in these scenes. Um, Particularly with Inglewood and Diana, I think, because this is Inglewood's shining moment. Mm -hmm. This is like when he becomes something better and different than he was before or like just more himself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like that the moment that sort of breaks him is is Diana crying because Mm -hmm. she's such a stoic, strong character. And so he sees this moment of humanity and weakness and he can finally like step into the position that he's meant to have as a man in the, in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny how he recognizes too, like she sort of is uncomfortable that he's kind of in a way stronger than her in that moment um, because she's so used to being the strong one. And he's like, Oh, just give me this. Like, you know, you're going to bully me your whole life. (laughs) Just give me this moment. Like, let me be strong here. You'll be stronger than me for the rest of our lives together. (laughs) Just come on. Exactly. So great. Yeah. And then I think, no, I think you're right about the reversal of roles too, even with uh, Michael Moon and Rosamund Hunt, because usually she's the sort of frivolous one that's wanting to play the mandolin and sing. But in this moment, she's being so serious and, um, and practical and he's being very unpractical and funny. And he's the one that seemed, or that suggests that they should go get the mandolin and start singing. Um, but the part where he chucks his pipe across the lawn of the garden reminded me of the movie Hitch. I don't know if anyone's seen Hitch out there. It's a classic with Will Smith. And um, anyways, there's a dude that he's sort of um, coaching to be better at dating. And he has this inhaler that's like this crutch. And so at some point he is dropping off his date and he really wants to kiss her, but he's afraid to. So he like goes to take a whiff of his inhaler and instead he chucks it across the street and goes and kisses her. Yes. (laughs) Albert's shining moment. Yeah. It reminds me of that. Exactly. And it's so funny. Like I'm wondering if like in some weird way, if it was possible that they were inspired by this <laughs> maybe not I don't yeah know. I don't know I uh, yeah I wonder if the producers of Hitch ever read any Chesterton but <laughs> it is kind of an action that I think is universal in that mm-hmm. casting away of our fears mm-hmm. and like ta- taking a leap of faith doing something bold it's it's really brilliant to um to show it in such a like visual and physical Mm -hmm. way rather than just you know a person can just think in their mind I'm letting go of all my fears or they can chuck a pipe across the lawn (laughs) and and show everyone that they're they're letting go of their their fears or their you know their past um expectations of things whatnot no I like that it's really incarnational something tangible yes which Chesterton loves he loves to loves to bring things to life for sure um so when michael is giving his proposal speech to rosamond um he i think has the the best one of the best quotes of the chapter this is maybe my favorite quote of the book might be it's pretty good yeah oh it's so romantic and just like so wonderfully bold He kept two big blue magnetic eyes fixed on her face, 
Is my name Moon, he asked. Is your name Hunt? On my honor, they sound to me as quaint and distant as Red Indian names. It's as if your name was Swim and my name was Sunrise. But our real names are husband and wife. And they were when we fell asleep. Ugh, so good! <laughs> so good! And I love how he's like, he's really pinpointed that like, we've been asleep and wasting our time. Yeah. For years. Like, but the truth didn't change while we were asleep. And he's finally giving the truth a name, husband and wife. Absolutely. I just thought that was so beautiful. That It also was reminiscent to me of the Garden of Eden, the whole like the sleep of Adam, um, how God takes Eve from his sleep. And so I wonder if it's it has something to do with that, if there's an allusion to that, where the sleepiness, so to speak, of Michael Moon and his life is like now yeah. waking to find the woman that was right in front of him the whole time, you know? Yeah. And like that this is somebody that God has provided yeah. in the way that Adam was provided with Eve. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I mean, he was familiar with the Bible, so I'm sure there was yeah some inspiration from that. Mm-hmm. And then that quote from the beginning of the episode that we read, the quote about imprudent marriages, yes. so good. I, I just, just like, I love the line that says, um, unhappy, of course you'll be unhappy. Who the devil are you that you shouldn't be unhappy like the mother that bore you? I, I felt like that was so like Irish of him to say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's so true. Like I, I can honestly, like, I don't know. I feel like since I've been married, I have a small glimpse of this but I mean we all recognize this that no you're not going to be happy your whole life there are going to be days or months or moments where you're seriously unhappy whether Mm -hmm. it be because of how you're feeling or something you're going through and no person can guarantee that you're going to have this perfect blissful paradise of a life right at all but they can guarantee that they'll be side by side with you mm-hmm. throughout it. And yeah, I, I love how he says you'll be disappointed too. It's like, yes, I can't promise you that I'll be a better person than I am today. But yeah. I do promise you myself. Right. And that has to be enough at some point. Yeah. To I commit mean, to somebody. To recognize that if you're imperfect, then of course your spouse is going to be un- imperfect. And neither of you... Like the purpose of marriage isn't unfortunately or maybe not unfortunately, but uh, contrary to the cultural belief, um, marriage is is not to fulfill all the desires of my heart. You know, Um, it's like God's the one who can do that because God is infinite and overflowing and there's no end to his awesomeness, you know. Um, but as human beings, we're we're finite and we're broken and there's no way that we can fulfill each other totally. But what we can offer each other is companionship on that journey to God. And so I think that, I don't know, it just it's really beautiful how kind of straightforward he is about that, like right up front and like would that more people would be that up front yeah. In their relationships, you know, to, to recognize that this is not going to be the end all be all. Yes. The the typical thing that we hear about romance in books or movies is, you know, I I adore you and I promise like, you know, you never hear of somebody's faults being criticized, mm-hmm. which he's clearly been criticizing Rosamond and yeah. she's been criticizing him like they see each other clearly. They see that they have shortcomings. Um, and instead of him pledging, like we hear all the time, you know, all of these glorious things, he's saying, I know there will, there will be all of these difficult things, but he still wants to get married Mm -hmm. despite it. And like, you can tell that they're talking about a lifelong, a lifelong commitment to each other. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you ever listened to Ben Rector, um, but, a little bit. Yeah, I've listened to him, I guess, more in the past than I have recently. But uh, there were some songs on his second album that kind of reminded me of this idea. I, I'm not a big, like, sappy love song or, like, rom-com person. I don't really like those things very much. I like when things are honest or when things are real, which is why this is one of my favorite novels. Even though it's, like, kind of whimsical and crazy, like, there's something real about it. And I, I think I, I just like that. But Ben Rector says something in one of his songs about um like I love 
my lady who's his wife of many years and he says and I probably wouldn't trade her and just the fact that he said probably (laughs) makes me think like how real is that you know what I mean and like they're they're in love you know but it's like he's real and he's honest about the fact that this is like this is not the fulfillment of my heart or this is not the fulfillment yeah. of all my desires and nobody would be you know yeah but he's committed to her and he loves her and he chooses to love her and I don't know I just it seemed it makes me laugh every time I hear it yes. but it's like almost a relief you know like if you're not gonna satisfy all the deepest desires of someone's heart or they're not gonna satisfy all the deepest desires of your heart like that's a lot of pressure that's taken off of you absolutely you know what I mean yeah um so it's it's like oh we can just kind of like laugh and sigh and be like huh nothing's perfect but god so like let's go there together you know yes yeah and i think a distinction that might be important to make is that you know chesterton isn't saying marry a bad person yeah exactly like he he's encouraging marriage a lot in this book and like all of what we're hearing sounds like these people are just like willy-nilly throwing things to the wind like oh let's just get married because they're getting married but, like, let's look at the history here. Right. They've all known each other for a very long time. They've all been close friends and living in the same boarding house for a very long time. There's, like, um, a complete awareness of who these other people are, of who the other person is. And um, everybody has faults, but that doesn't mean to marry a bad person. I guess it. Mm-hmm. he's not saying go marry an alcoholic or something. <laughs> yeah. Or something, but he, he is saying... If what's holding you back is perfection in a marriage or this desired idea of perfection in a marriage, then stop waiting for that and go for it with the person that you love because it's never going to be perfect, as Grace said. Exactly. I love that clarification. That's that's really important. Um, Another thing that he says in that speech, kind of continuing on... um, she she finally is kind of starting to crack um, and says, do you really want to marry me? She's like, <laughs> so vulnerable. I thought that was so cute. Um, and he's like, my darling, what else is there to do? What other occupation is there for an active man on this earth except to marry you? Um, and then later he says, the only thing to the only third thing to do is marry yourself, to live with yourself, 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 yourself. The only companion that is never satisfied and never satisfactory. And I think that is is a deep insight as well that like as human beings, we're not made to be alone. Right. Mm. And there's other things, obviously, you know, not everyone is going to get married. There's other vocations. There's other things. um, But they always involve a gift of yourself to another. Right. And so if you are just concerned with yourself and what's going to make you happy and all of your desires being fulfilled, but you're not turning outwards towards another, it's just this stuffy, dark cramped space that I think the image of which could be Michael Moon in his pub talking to random barmaids and like not ever really going deep with anyone um where he's just satisfying his you know surface level desires and he's miserable you know and he's only happy he he always goes home alone exactly at the end of it yeah he's only happy when he's in the boarding house with Rosamond and he can go outside of himself even if they're arguing even if they're being frustrating to each other it's like there's something way more fulfilling in him making a commitment to her than there is um to just like these strangers so to speak yeah I completely agree yeah and I think that like we see in our society today not all of this existed in the same way when Chesterton was living, but in some ways it did, like, the perversion of love we see exemplified in so many ways in our culture, um, you know, that putting ourselves first results in so many awful things like abortion and pornography and um loveless marriages and adultery and all of these things and it's it's really refreshing to hear him talk about this is like just directly putting his finger on that these Mm -hmm. things fulfilling yourself or loving yourself it's not what you were made for you'll never be happy doing that Mm -hmm. and so like even the unhappiness or like the the times of unhappiness being with another person 
but giving of yourself to another person is better than quote unquote loving yourself. Right. And it's, it's that great paradox because you think like, oh, if I am going to be fulfilled, then I need to focus on myself being fulfilled. But the reality is that I'm fulfilled when I end up not focusing on myself and I'm focusing on another person. So it seems counterintuitive, but it ends up being what actually satisfies. Yeah. Um, the part, the next part when Arthur is proposing to Diana, um, I love the quote that said to see Diana Duke crying was like seeing a motor car shedding tears of oil. (laughs) And then I also love the part where it said he acted as men do when a theater catches fire very differently from how they would have conceived themselves as acting, whether for better or for worse. Um, it's almost like when something comes to a head, like he has to jump into action and when he sees her crying it's so jarring that he all of a sudden forgets all of his walls and all of his facades and all of the thing the ways that he's trying to come across as looking like he's very concerned with his appearance he's very concerned with how other people are taking him and viewing him but in this moment he's suddenly not concerned with himself and it allows him to be more of himself and to comfort her and to be that person that's there for her totally yeah, he he faces like what is my response fight uh what is it fight, fight flight, or flight yeah, yeah <laughs> or freeze. <laughs> and for him it's like okay, I'm in this. I'm stepping up to the plate. And mm-hmm. as Grace kind of mentioned before, there's that great quote in this part too about um you might allow a man the one minute of his life when he's allowed to bully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's it's it kind of is true in that like a man who really loves his wife really allows her a lot of like freedom and and um I don't know I I think I've seen this in a lot of the marriages in my family as well just that when the wife is really unhappy like unhappy wife unhappy life (laughs) um and like he recognizes this like he's being honest about it like I know that I'm gonna have to let you do what you need to do to be happy and to be you know, the kind of woman that you are. Um, But this, in this moment, let me be, let me be the man. Let me, let me bully you a little bit for once. Right. So good. And then he just, after he, he finally proposes, he just kind of comes alive. And when he walks back outside, um, all of them walk back outside. And I think now they're at the front of the house um, looking at the cab. And he notices, he's like noticing all these details with, it says senseless delight. He's just like totally enraptured by the world around him now that he's kind of come alive and he's let the facades drop and he's just become himself and he's professed love to this woman who he's been delighted with this whole time, you know? And he says, um, he saw a, a railing with the blue spears loosened. One of the, the spears is loosened in its place and hung sideways and it says it almost made him laugh he thought it somehow exquisitely harmless and funny that the railing should be crooked he thought that he should like to know how it happened who did it and how the man was getting on (laughs) i just i don't know why i thought that was so funny just he's like happy he like wants to give anyone a greeting he wants to know about anything he's like yeah i don't know you think he would just go and say hello to a stranger in the street it's as if like giving his love to this one woman suddenly freed him to like love the whole world. Yeah. In a way that he couldn't before. Yeah. I like that. That's very true. I also I love I love the scene with the four of them because uh what do they start dancing? Yeah, yes. they like start doing like <laughs> ring around the rosie or something. They or start all yeah, they the start mulberry bush. holding each other's hands and doing this dance in the yard around a yeah, around a bush that isn't there. Um <laughs> but it's like watching a bunch of children on the playground who are just like so carefree now that they've let go of all of like as you said like just the pretense mm-hmm. of the life that they were living before and they're fully themselves they're fully enjoying this like lovely afternoon in the garden Mm -hmm. holding hands with their best friends dancing (laughs) it's it's a very childlike scene um and also a little bit crazy like what are they doing (laughs) yeah and then into that like elation kind of crashes 
Dr. Warner, who is still this, has not experienced the joy that Innocent Smith has henceforth brought to the house. And he is totally blindsided by it. It's like, what the heck are you people doing? He's like coming in from the outside and he hasn't, yeah, you know. And he's only interacted with them previously in a very like, um, I don't know, leader at like as a leader of the group and as like he was somebody who Inglewood Inglewood formed his opinions after and like right who he he definitely like set the tone in the house previously because he was this important doctor right and now he's coming in and everybody's like oh like we don't actually need you sorry we don't care that you're here everything's actually okay and he's like very flustered and ruffled yeah. by that yeah it's almost as if he could say like I left you guys for five minutes and look what happens yeah. <laughs> like here he's the parent here. he's like the cynical parent in the situation right leaving his kids and yeah. so they're all they're all trying to explain he he sees especially Arthur who he knows I think probably has basically worshipped him up to this point you know and he sees him and he's like Arthur what are you doing <laughs> and he's like he's like I found out that health really is catching right <laughs> it's yeah. like that everybody was was being unhealthy and it's actually contagious when people around you start to act like themselves and become alive then you want to yeah. become alive as well yeah so Dr. Warner is not to be deterred he did bring another man along with him who we meet in just a bit and He's determined to investigate this madman on the premises, um, despite the friends assuring him that everything was all right, which is quite funny because it's not like they called the police. They right. they called a friend to say, hey, come check this out. And if you really were friends with somebody and then showed up and they said, oh, everything's all right, you'd just join in on the fun, right? And hang <laughs> yeah. out with them. But instead, he's like determined to keep this role, this special mm-hmm. role that he has in his in his mind of investigator. And like, he's going to get to the bottom of what is reasonable and what is really going on here. Right. Um, it's interesting when they're talking about like sanity and lunacy and all of these things. Um, Rosamond says something interesting. Um, Dr. Warner says that he can hardly comprehend the change. And Rosamond says, oh, how can one explain a change in the sun and moon and everybody's soul? I must confess, we had got so morbid as to think him mad merely because he wanted to get married and that we didn't even know it was only because we wanted to get married ourselves. We'll humiliate ourselves if you like doctor, we're happy enough. Um, so I just, I thought that was really interesting because I think it's very true that sometimes we can get angry and flustered and frustrated when the people around us have the guts to actually drop the facades and do what it is that they desire to do that we also desire to do, but are too afraid of like what everybody's going to think about it. I don't know. I've definitely experienced before, like, feeling myself getting frustrated with somebody, but really recognizing it was because I was on some level like jealous of them. Like, why didn't I think of that? Or why didn't I do that or something? Yeah. Have you ever experienced before, um, I guess, kind of the opposite of that, like getting really swept away by somebody's passion and like then pursuing something that you did want to pursue? So you mean like being swept away by another person's passion that wasn't your own? Well, like kind of in this situation, they're inspired and swept away by Innocent's passion oh, for I Mary see. Gray and they're inspired to like do something in their own life. Yeah. Um, you know, oh, like, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think so for sure. I mean, having having somebody's example. Um, yeah. I wonder if maybe it has something to do with your level of trust of that person to begin with. Maybe if there's something about that, I'm just kind of spitballing here. If there's something about them that you're unsure about, like they were kind of unsure about Innocent Smith at first, but then later they realize that he's okay. And so then they're free to kind of imitate him in different ways. Yeah. Um, But if you're not sure of a person's goodness, um, 
I don't know. Or maybe there's just something about them that bothers you or, or that you are jealous of or something. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, that is, that is, I was going to say, that's interesting. I think once they, once they feel, um, that he's this solidly virtuous person, this like solidly innocent, good person who's been dropped into their life, they Mm -hmm. do feel free to follow him, which is really Mm -hmm. beautiful. I, I do think that plays a big part in it. I was just thinking of like a small example that, um, I have a good friend who, um, she actually lives in San Diego now, which is total blessing. But, um, when we were in college, she was like, I'm going to run a half marathon. Do you want to run a half marathon? And I'd always wanted to run one, but I was always like, I'm not a runner and I can't run that far. And that's insane. And you know, whatever. And so we signed up for a race together and I didn't end up running a half marathon at that race, but I did end up running some half marathons eventually because she got me going on that first race. Yeah. And it like took away a lot of my fear of like kind of diving into the challenge, but I knew it was something that I really wanted to do. Now I have, I have to admit I'm at a time in my life where I have no desire for that now, but at the time <laughs> it was like the, it was something that I really did want to do. And I'm like, I'm so happy that she inspired me to achieve it. Um, right. just by her example and her excitement. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think that's awesome. I've, I've experienced something similar, I think with, um, with active things like that. For me, it was like joining a gym. This was gosh, years ago now, but I had never done anything that was sort of athletic or, or anything of the sort. I hadn't gone to a gym regularly. Um, and I had a lot of friends who were getting into CrossFit. <laughs> and so, for a while, I went to a gym that was sort of a CrossFit hybrid with some other things. So it wasn't as intense as a regular CrossFit gym. But um, but it just completely flipped my world upside down because I had never I was always kind of too afraid to enter into that world. But I had friends that were like, come do it with us, you know. And so when I did, it was it was a game changer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so. At this point, everybody's trusting of Innocent Smith, except for Dr. Warner, of course. Yes. Um, and everybody thinks he's great, and everybody thinks the world is great, and they think everybody's great, and everything's wonderful. And then it's as if something just bursts, and it's like too much excitement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because they hear these gunshots, and they see Innocent Smith with a gun in his hand, and they're like totally shaken like what what just happened and I just want to remind everybody that this is the second time that innocent has ruined one of Dr. Warner's hats because (laughs) in the the first (laughs) chapter he chased Dr. Warner's hat up the tree and like by the time he wrestled it down to the ground again it was completely destroyed and he um what does he say a shabby hat is better than no hat or something like that yeah and uh every king a crown or something yes and then so now again he's ruined another one of his hats and I have to think that this is partially because because I still believe innocent is a good character I think he partially does this because of Dr. Warner's vanity Uh uh-huh like that's the point yeah the horrible reaction he had in the first chapter to having his hat ruined like he refused to wear it and he storms off from the boarding house eventually like before the next chapter Mm-hmm. And it's it's like part of his vanity was removed and he felt vulnerable all of yeah. a sudden. And so he kind of puts him in a similar situation again. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I really liked this quote um, sort of describing the shift in the scene. It says, indeed, every object grew more and more particular and precious because the whole picture was breaking up. Things look so bright just before they burst. I thought that was kind of ominous, you know? It's kind of setting us up for, like, wondering, okay, like, what is actually going on here? Like, is there something dark and sinister behind all of this joy? Or is there yeah. actually something good behind all of this joy? Yeah. Um, I thought it was it was pretty suspenseful in that way. Um, but all of a sudden, everybody's attitude changes, right? Right. 
and now everyone's just sort of in a state of shock and they're kind of stunned and they're like what is happening here yeah and and dr pym bursts out of the cab that dr warner came in and he accuses innocent smith of being a murderer Mm -hmm. which really changes the tone right exactly and i i guess when i first read it i thought he was accusing him of attempted murder with um with dr warner but he says he he clearly has some sort of idea of who innocent smith is because he says he has gone by many other names um so in other words he's implying like there's something else that he's done that we know about that is not good or that's sinister in some way yeah it's clear that there's something in innocence history that we're not aware of yet mm-hmm. that um dr pym believes himself to be aware of and yeah it is suspenseful it made me feel like is all of this beautiful business of them all getting engaged going to just disappear in an instant i mean it all happened yeah. in a day and now it's gone because this isn't who he said he was yeah easy come easy go <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's really interesting i it's i don't know maybe a a kind of philosophical meditation on like the whole idea of things that are too good to be true so to speak like yeah. we kind of can tend to think like when things are going so well is there something I'm missing? Mm. You know? Um, yeah. Like, could it possibly be this good? Yeah. And, and just sort of a suspicion or a sort of fear that this is going to end in like, not a good way. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking yeah. out loud. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a really good observation that you made that it seems like everything all of a sudden just bursts. But I don't think everything is lost from mm-hmm. this chapter. I think everyone's deflated and mm-hmm. they feel... I think they're in a state of shock. Yeah. Well, yeah, it definitely... It it changes the mood completely and um, Dr. Warner sort of starts talking to Rosamond as if she's like done some civic duty right. by, by reporting him to... By reporting Smith to him and... Um, which I find kind of comical. But. Yeah, it also is kind of funny. They're treating themselves as if they're police officers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're just like scientists, <laughs> right? It kind of speaks to their self-importance, though, which he discussed in the first chapter. Chesterton discussed in the first chapter about how, you know, Doctor Warner was a doctor of importance, but. Um, what did he say that the things he studied were the kinds of things that a man would only want to study by poking by putting a poker in his brains or something like that (laughs) yeah so there's clearly this sort of ridiculousness around um, the self-importance that these two doctors feel about their authority in the situation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we kind of leave the chapter there with the with the unknown of what we're going to find about innocence history. It's true. I don't know. It's definitely a cliffhanger. What's yes. gonna happen next? So I guess we'll have to uh we'll have to wait till next week to find out. But yeah. um what do you think we could learn from this chapter? Anything? Um some takeaways, I guess. Be bold. Go do the things that you know you want to do, that you know are good for you to do, that you're afraid of doing. Um, Take the dance class. Go hike a mountain. Talk to that person you're really interested in. Um, And I feel like uh, just opening our eyes up to seeing what's really around us and appreciating what's really around us. For sure. That's definitely a theme, I think, in Chesterton in general. Um, I said along that same vein to surround yourself with healthy people because as Inglewood said health really is catching Um, the types of people that we surround ourselves with are the types of people that we're going to become like and so I think um, you know earlier you were mentioning being inspired by your friends to run the marathon you know like 
how are how are the people around us inspiring us with their own lives and their own striving for virtue or striving for for goodness and things like that so um but i also put to don't look for happiness in relationships as the world looks for happiness in relationships that like there is going to be happiness but the type that the world sort of promises is just it's not the reality there's a deeper happiness there's a deeper joy that comes from you know from marriage from friendship um but it, it never was meant to satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. So to kind of see relationships for what they actually are um, and seek that that sort of happiness rather than um, them as like the end all be all. Perfect. Also said to to kind of let your guard down and be vulnerable. Um, Diana letting her guard down and crying and <laughs> allowing herself to be seen by Inglewood um was like the moment that changed everything for them you know yeah um we would try to be strong all the time we can sometimes voluntarily or involuntarily kind of put off walls that keep people out um they're not allowed to see who we really are you know and we don't give them yeah. a chance to actually serve us um which can help them discover who they are right so that's a great example yeah and sometimes when you let somebody else into how you're actually doing, how you're actually feeling. Mm. They've often been through something similar or the same thing and can help to lift you up mm-hmm. while or it you're gives going them, through something. Absolutely. Or it just gives them the chance to learn empathy more. Yeah. You know? And to learn um, more about you and mm-hmm. you, that you're not just, I don't know, we we do all do this. We just say we're fine when people mm-hmm. ask us or we're doing well, you know. Mm-hmm. So. For sure. Well, what are you grateful for this week? So I am grateful for the new place that I'm living in. I mentioned before that I was moving. I sort of had a realization. I had a couple, couple nights where I had some friends over. We had a little fire pit in the backyard at this new place. Um, And I had been complaining a lot about moving and, about having to live alone, which I'm not a fan of. I'm such an extrovert. I want to be around people all the time. So the fact that I'm living alone now is not ideal. Um, but I realized that in not having to share my house yet, um, this is a temporary situation. I had more freedom to actually invite people over whenever I wanted to invite them over mm-hmm. and kind of get to spend more time around people that I hadn't been spending time around the last year or so in my previous house, I had great roommates. Um, but because of COVID and everything like that, it was like our house was meant to be for entertaining, but we weren't able to use it for that. Um, but now that, that the vaccines are out and everything is starting to kind of die down. Um, and I have my own space. It's a lot easier for me to invite my friends over and that's a huge blessing. Yeah. What a great way to look at it. So I kind of, you know, I'm still learning not to complain, <laughs> but Aren't we all? Marie it's yeah. inspired me by her, her Linton promise not to mm. complain, <laughs> but also it's been coming up as a theme because I've also been doing the Bible in a year podcast and they, we've been reading through, um, numbers and Deuteronomy, which is mm-hmm. literally like Israel complaining nonstop and right. God being like, stop complaining. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just like, wow. Okay. This is, this is yeah. all coming to me I realized what a complainer I was when I decided not to complain anymore and every day I would ask myself and what is what I'm about to say something that I just want to share as like a you know this has been an experience of my day I'm kind of just objectively trying to talk about my day to you or am I complaining about it? Mm. And I realized, like, I have to ask myself that question a lot, which means I'm complaining a lot. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, it's, yeah. We get into a habit of doing it, and it's not a joyful habit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So. I find a, it's sometimes a hard line to draw when you, like me, are an external processor. Um, sometimes I have to process through what's happened to me and it comes out 
as complaining. Um, and sometimes sure. it can easily kind of spill over into complaining. Um, so it starts out as me just trying to process and then it <laughs> becomes just complaining. Yeah. So um, that's definitely something that I have to look out for as well. Yeah. Hopefully we have long lives ahead of us where we'll perfect these things year after year, day after day. Right. I am really grateful for my work this week. I just got to be involved with some really great things this week. Um, we had our 10,000th show. Okay, so this is crazy. My mom called me right before uh, this podcast that we're recording right now. And my mom loves Catholic Answers. So she was listening and she was like, I had to call you and tell you, I listened to the 10,000th episode. And Cy mentioned like, Marie, you did such a good job with the decorations. And I was like, I know who that is now. Oh, <laughs> she's so sweet. I can't wait to meet your mom someday. Yeah. We got it. We're going to visit out there sometime. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, it was just a blast. Like, uh, Cy did forget for the first few minutes of the show that we were celebrating our 10,000th show, but it's a big accomplishment. I mean, definitely the radio show has been going for, oh gosh, I don't even know, 25 years, maybe. Wow. Maybe not quite that long, but it's, it's been a while and I've been involved for almost three years. And so it's just been like such a blessing to see improvements and like see changes. And so that's been great. And then I also got the opportunity to talk to a woman through my work um, today, actually, who just like had this load on her heart about mm. um, the future of her family. And I feel like I am in like such a place to sympathize with that right now. And so I, I got to have this really long conversation with a woman and hopefully offered some like helpful resources for her. But um like in the end of the conversation, she and I were just both saying to each other, God really is going to provide for mm. us. Like, so he like sees our lives so intimately. He's so intricately involved in everything. And like, sometimes we forget that. And, you know, she was stressing about money and children and different things. And I said, like, something has got to give, like, God is going to provide for you in a way that you're not expecting. And and I really believe that because he's done that for me time and time and time again, um, especially when I ask him to, <laughs> you know, he, yep. he really does come through. So I'm super grateful for that this week. It's just really nice to be linked to so many wonderful people because of my work. For sure. Very good. Well, coming up next week, we will have the... Uh, well, not quite conclusion, but I guess continuation of trying to discover who really is Innocent Smith. So this will be Man Alive Chapter 5, The Allegorical Practical Joker, which is an interesting title. Yes. Until then, you can find us on Instagram at Pints with Chesterton. Our website is pintswithchesterton.com and our email is pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.